Welcome to the Asia Unbound podcast. I'm Alyssa Ayers of the Council on Foreign Relations, and I am sitting here today with Dr. Elizabeth Economy, Director of the Asia Program at the Council on Foreign Relations, and most importantly for our discussion today, author of the new book, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. Welcome, Liz. Thanks, Alyssa. It's great to be here. And normally you're on the other side of the mic, right? Normally you're the interviewer. I am, but I'm looking forward to this. Great. Well, I'm going to start with a question that I think won't surprise you. Tell us a little bit about the title. Tell us about the Third Revolution and what that means. I think for listeners who aren't familiar with Chinese political history, give us a little background on the First and the Second Revolutions, and now what led you to conclude that this is a Third Revolution underway with President Xi Jinping. Sure. Thanks very much. So, I think Xi Jinping, in many respects, said it best. If you look back to his marathon three-and-a-half-hour speech in October of 2017 when he was reselected as general secretary of the Communist Party, there was a line about halfway through the speech where he said that China has stood up, grown rich, become strong, and is moving towards center stage. And if you parse out that statement, I think you get each part of the three revolutions. So the first revolution was really Mao Zedong, who stood up against foreign invaders, but also against the ruling party at the time, the Kuomintang, to create the Chinese Communist Party state in 1949 and 1950. And his tenure uh, lasted almost 30 years. So that was really the first revolution. The second revolution was Deng Xiaoping his period of reform and opening up. Mm. Uh, That's the period when China grew rich, and Deng Xiaoping welcomed influences from abroad, uh, foreign capital, foreign ideas. He introduced the market uh, into the Chinese economy. Civil society blossomed. It's the period of time when Chinese NGOs, non-governmental organizations, were first established. Deng, in fact, himself called this period of time the Second Revolution. And now we have Xi Jinping, you know, beginning in 2012, in many respects, Xi Jinping has upended the second revolution. Mm. So this is the period, in Xi's own words, that China has become strong and is moving towards center stage. And if you look at the sort of transformation uh, that's been underway over the past five, almost five and a half years now under Xi, you'll see that Xi has moved China from collective decision-making that took place under Deng Xiaoping to a far more single-leader authoritarian nature of governance. Instead of welcoming influences uh, from the outside, he is uh, creating a virtual wall of restrictions and regulations Mm. uh, through which he can more closely control what comes in and what goes out of the country. Instead of withdrawing the Communist Party in many respects from Chinese society and from the economy. He is reasserting the role of the Communist Party into the society and the economy. And certainly, I think, and from the perspective of many of us, you know, outside of China, what's been most notable and noticeable uh, about the Third Revolution is really that Xi Jinping has adopted a far more expansive and ambitious foreign policy uh, because one of the hallmarks of the Deng period was a low-profile foreign policy. Deng was fond of saying, hide brightness and cherish obscurity because he wanted to focus on what was taking place inside the country, on growing the economy and on improving the standards of living of the Chinese people. So now you have a system in China that is, in many respects, both more authoritarian and controlling at home, but far more ambitious and expansive abroad. Abroad, right. Let me, you, you write in your book 
about something that she has discussed, the Chinese dream. What's the Chinese dream? What is he aiming for? Tell us about the Chinese dream. So the Chinese dream, Xi Jinping sort of uh, adopted this term very early on, within the first few weeks, in fact, of his tenure. And what it really refers to is the rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation. And I think in its biggest form, it's, it's about reclaiming a degree of centrality for China on the global stage. There have been many efforts to define the Chinese dream, and she himself has, it's sort of evolved even for she himself, so it, it has to do with, I think, a robust Chinese Communist Party at the forefront of the political system. There's an element in which, you know, he talks about uh, the People's Liberation Army being an army that is capable of fighting and winning wars. Hmm. There's a part for the Chinese economy, that China is a modern and innovative economy that's capable of competing with the United States and Japan and, and Europe. You know, other people had their own Chinese dreams, so the Chinese people became very involved early on in, in trying to define it in ways that matter to them, so, you know, having to do with a clean environment, right? Or some people used to say it's a constitutional China, right, one that had a, a that where the Chinese uh, Communist Party would subordinate itself to a constitution. That's not the China that Xi Jinping has moved toward. When, when was the constitutional phase? Oh, very early on, okay. when, when there still seemed to be some discussion and some hope that Xi Jinping would turn out to be a political reformer. So we're talking maybe January, February of 2013, mm. maybe three months after he was selected as uh, the general secretary of the Communist Party. That phase ended very quickly <laughs> because people soon realized that wasn't the direction in which he was moving. But but I think at this point in time, it's it's basically understood as this you know Chinese effort to have a greater role in writing the rules of the road globally. You know, there's a big through line in your book about the role of information and what's happening in China with the flow of information. And in many ways, there's a paradox that you've described here. It's a, a paradox of, of a country that's going out more on the world stage, but is beginning to clamp, or not beginning, has already begun to clamp down much more on the flow of information internally to its own society. Can you talk about these kind of conflicting principles, I guess, of this new third revolution? Right. So one of the things that's important to understand about the Chinese leadership is that they're willing to tolerate a much higher degree of inefficiency and waste in their system in, in search of a larger strategic objective. And when it comes to the flow of information, uh, I think you, you see that very directly reflected in the fact that the Chinese internet is ranked something like 111th in terms of speed in the world. So imagine that you have the world's second largest economy, right, the world's largest trading power, and yet their internet is incredibly slow because of all of the restrictions huh. that they put on it, right? All of the censorship, the great firewall, everything they do to try to ensure that the Chinese people are not obtaining information that they don't want them to obtain from the outside world and that they're not transmitting that information as well. I, I think from the perspective of people in the West, we find that to be a pretty significant contradiction in terms of China's right. desire to be an innovation nation, for right. example, and its control of information. But uh, thus you far... You wrote about that pretty specifically also uh, for scientists. Exactly. Yeah. Thus far, they seem to be managing it reasonably well uh, in terms of, you know, innovation continues. Uh, maybe not that kind of breakthrough invention, but mm -hmm. the innovation develops and, and moves forward. 
interestingly, they've just discussed, they're, right now they're in the midst of trying to attract uh, many more foreign scientists to come to China. In particular, as we see the United States beginning to pass more restrictions and talking about limiting the ability of you know, foreign-born nationals, in particular Chinese, to hold visas and to work in many sectors of advanced technology, mm. the Chinese are trying to open their doors wider, right, mm. and, and bring in you know, foreign-born scientists. But at the same time as they're doing that, they're talking about a restriction that says that all scientific information, all research that's done inside China before it is sent out of the country, right, before a, a professor might share it with a colleague abroad. Including it, submission to a journal? Exactly. Including oh. submission to a journal, it needs to be reviewed by the government. So imagine what that's going to do huh. to the process of, you know, information flow back and forth and the speed and pace at which Chinese scientists can compete with their foreign competitors. So that is going to presumably put some hurdles in the way of leading-edge innovation, I would think. A absolutely, and, yeah. and it will certainly undermine their effort to have foreign-born scientists or foreign scientists come to China to do their research. Already, China is not the most hospitable environment, and the priorities that it sets are, are not necessarily ones that that lead to the best outcomes. You know, for example, you know, placing a premium on the number of papers that's published as opposed to the quality of papers. Oh, I see. Uh, the number of patents. You know, China sets a lot of targets and timetables for certain kinds of achievements without necessarily focusing on the quality mm -hmm. of, of what it's producing. So that's already a problem for foreign scientists, not how they operate. But, you know, this is only going to be one more restriction, one more thing that they're not going to want to, you know, have to deal with. Let me shift back to the question of the Internet. It wasn't that long ago that it seemed like the Internet was a potential space for a blossoming of freedom of expression and civil society. Can you talk a little bit about that? I remember when I came to the Council on Foreign Relations in 2013, I remember you telling me about Sina Weibo and how people had millions of followers. Just the scale of this thing was so enormous. What's been the trajectory of the Internet in the last five years since then? I think it's one of the areas in which Xi Jinping and the government have been most effective and, and I think you know, most surprisingly effective. So if you look back, you know, as you're suggesting to 2011 and 2012, before Xi Jinping came to power, the internet really had become a virtual political space. You did have these entrepreneurs like Pan Shi or Li Kai-Fu and, and others who had 10, 20, 50 million followers on their, on their yeah. blogs. It is amazing. <laughs> and, you know, they were doing things like agitating for reform in environmental protection. Mm -hmm. Some of them were even talking about the necessity of political reform more broadly. But as soon as Xi Jinping came into power, he began to cut these people off at the knees, right? Mm. Because in many respects, they represented alternative power centers, right? I mean, 50 million people is a significant number, right? Even in a country of 1.3 billion people, or, you know, at the time, you probably had five, 600 million internet users, right? That's, you know, 8% of the population or something that's following one person. Uh, and so that is giving a person a very significant voice. So anyway, he began very quickly uh, to shut these people down in a number of ways, parading them on TV, forcing them to admit to their mistakes, arresting some, having the media attack others. So if you look today at the blogs of these, you know, well-known reform-oriented entrepreneurs and, and others, uh, they're very quiet, hmm. and they're not talking about these issues anymore. So that's one way in which the Internet has become constrained. A second, I think, is just in terms of the 
ability of the Chinese people to connect with each other. So one of the things that I look at in the book was the period of the Beijing floods Mm -hmm. and how the Chinese people reached out to each other. It's one of the most extraordinary demonstrations of community that I've seen in my, you know, more than 25 years of, of looking at China and traveling back and forth. People reached out to each other. There were horrible, horrible floods. People were getting stranded and drowning. And people said, come stay in my apartment or I will come and rescue you. And it was just really an amazing thing to witness from the outside. Fast forward two years later, there were similar floods in Hebei. And this was after the government had become much more restrictive on the Internet. And the minute the floods hit, the websites were shut down. You couldn't have the same sense of community developing. More people died. The outcome was so suboptimal, yet the government was much more concerned about you know, constraining information criticism. And, and the potential for criticism of the government than it was about actually having this community develop and actually having the Chinese people help each other and getting a better outcome. So I think there are many different ways in which the Xi government has become far more adept at controlling the internet, you know, using internet companies, you know, as their uh, levers of control. But still, but still, right, movements like the feminist movement, Mm -hmm. uh, the LGBTQ movements, they still use the internet and they refuse to be suppressed. And so you'll, you'll see, you know, every time the Chinese government, you know, tries to clamp down on, you know, one form of expression or one particular set of characters, you know, this, these communities will find other ways of expressing the exact same ideas. Something new, a new meme in other forms. Exactly, huh. exactly. So it's, you know, society is, it continues, the sort of pressures from below continue to burble up, uh, but this is a far more controlling and more adept government in terms of, you know, just trying to prevent all of these, you know, potentially explosive issues from, from actually spreading further. It's very sad, actually, particularly the impact in preventing citizens from helping each other. Let me pivot to something that you devoted a whole chapter to, which is anti-corruption. And this is something that she really picked up as a kind of priority issue very early on in his tenure, something he made his name on, the anti-corruption campaign. What has this meant? What has this meant for the Communist Party, for its legitimacy? for his leadership. Right. I mean, you're, you're quite right. He, this has really been the signature issue of his uh, first five years in office, and it is also something that he has spoken about and written about all throughout his career as he moved up the party ranks. That is what he was known for. You know, he would often say that no Chinese official should use his office or her office for personal economic gain. So this was a big issue for him even before he became the top leader. Once he became the top leader, it, it was the number one mm. priority for him. And immediately when he took power, he said corruption, if not addressed, could mean the death of the Chinese Communist Party and even the death of the Chinese state. So that signals, you know, I think how important he felt it was. And really, corruption was endemic, endemic in the party, endemic throughout the entire country. You know, the Communist Party had lost any sort of ideology, compelling ideology. It really was just a stepping stone for personal, political, and economic advancement. And so Xi Jinping has taken it upon himself to, to root out this very insidious kind of, of corruption. And 
at some level, he's been far more successful, I think, than many people would have anticipated. So, you know, anti-corruption campaigns date back centuries, right? They, you know, yeah. corruption has been a hallmark of a Chinese system, you know, dating back to the earliest empires. But Xi Jinping has managed, but they wax and wane, these anti-corruption campaigns. So even if you were to look to Mao Zedong, for example, he launched his first anti-corruption campaign in 1951. You know, within a first, with one, one or two years, it was pretty much over. Right then, it would pop up again, 1955, 1956, and that's been the trajectory historically. But with Xi Jinping, every year he has arrested more people than the year before. Hmm. So in 2017, more than a half a million, right, 527,000 officials were detained or arrested. That's and absolutely incredible. It is, and yeah. they've got a 99% you know success rate in prosecution. prosecution. So, so once once you've Jeez. been arrested, your story's basically over, uh-huh. um, and. So, so over a million, I think roughly a million and a half total now officials have been have been arrested in China. I think the challenge moving forward is again because corruption is endemic. Right? How do you determine, right, which person to go after? And and you know anybody potentially could be taken up on charges of corruption from from some point in mm-hmm. his or her career because that is the way the business was done even small and petty graft, right, down to the very level of a school teacher charging parents extra money. For tuition? To, well, for tuition, but even just to put the, a child next to a heater in a cold classroom, mm. right? So there were, everybody had a way to make money, you know, outside the system. And the fact that the anti-corruption campaign has been prosecuted by the party itself, right, from the top down, has meant that Xi Jinping has been subjected to some criticism on the score of potentially using the anti-corruption campaign for his own personal sort of benefit in terms of targeting his political opponents. Challengers. Uh Right. And indeed, there's a study that was done by a professor up at Harvard that demonstrated that at the vice ministerial level or above, so pretty senior level of official and above, uh, that about 40 percent of the officials that have been arrested are in some way tied into networks of Xi Jinping's political competitors. So while there's progress that's been made, the fact that the party itself is not subjected to sort of an outside, independent, prosecutorial and judicial system Mm. means that it is forever, right, being, if not doubted, at least there are people who are wondering, right, how impartial and how fair this approach really is. That's got to be hard for so many different people. I mean, half a million, that's just absolutely incredible. The role of the Communist Party, this is something else that you you spoke about 10 minutes ago about the centralization of the Communist Party. You've also written about the reinsertion or the, the resurgence of the role of the Communist Party in economic life. Can you talk about that for the listeners? Sure. So two things have happened under Xi Jinping that are both really important. First, sort of the centralization of power in Xi Jinping's hands. As the person. It's just yeah. himself, right? So sitting on top of all of the most important commissions and committees that oversee broad parts of policy. So cyber policy or policy national security or economic reform. All of these commissions, normally different members of the Standing Committee of Politburo would would be responsible for different commissions. But Xi Jinping basically sits on all of the most important committees or commissions. So he has certainly centralized power into his own hands. Uh, But there's also been, as you suggest, 
sort of a resurgence, a reassertion of the Communist Party into social and economic life. And in, in the economy in particular, you know, one of the things that many people anticipated in the Xi era, in particular after the third plenum of the 18th Party Congress in the fall of 2013, when the party and Xi Jinping himself laid out their economic reform agenda, a lot of people outside China thought, oh, after 10 years where economic reform had largely stalled, now we're going to start to see the dismantling of the state-owned enterprises, you know, the sort of opening up of the Chinese economy to greater competition, both within China and certainly a more level playing field for multinationals. Instead, we've seen Xi Jinping... You, you say know, it's basically the opposite. It is. Xi Jinping has strengthened the hand of the state-owned enterprises and has begun a process of enhancing the role of party committees, not only within state-owned enterprises, but also within private companies and in joint ventures, which is truly astonishing. So, you know, party committees, the role of a party cell in a, in a company was basically party members would gather maybe once a week or once a month and read a speech that had been, you know, sent down by Xi Jinping or some other leader that had some particularly important point of, you know, party dogma and talk about it, study it, talk about it. Maybe they'd say, oh, we're going to launch a tree planting campaign, and the party cell would take the lead on that for its factory or its company. That was really the role of the of the party cell. It was like during a lunch break or something? Yeah, during uh-huh. a lunch break. And then sometimes they perform self-criticisms, you know, things mm-hmm. that I've done wrong. But, you know, again, this it wasn't terribly seriously taken by most party members. But Xi Jinping has said, you know, the head of the party cell should be the chairperson of the board of the company, yeah, right? which is, you know, I mean, unheard of. It, it fundamentally changes the structure of governance. And certainly for joint ventures, that's unacceptable, Yeah, right? Um, they'll say, they're trying to say, tell joint ventures, for example, we need you to invest in this particular locale, right? So irrespective of whether it makes sense for a certain company, perhaps to set up a new factory in have a one part of the country, rationale. there's a political rationale, exactly right. Like, they need to have some industry here to help develop the you know low living standards, uh, you know, to raise the living standards of the people. So I think this, you know, right now you see a lot of pushback from the multinationals, you know, against this kind of policy. You're also seeing from you know private entrepreneurs where uh, and the tech companies where the Chinese government has come in and said, you know, we'll take a two percent stake in your company, take control of a certain area of policy of of you know of, of your investment policy and we'll take a seat on your board, by the way. And the entrepreneurs are like, we don't want any of that. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you don't have any experience in our, in our you know, field, and we don't want your involvement. We don't want this sort of insertion of you know, political rationale into our investment decisions. We are you know, competitive at the topmost level globally, and you know, we do that by not having sort of these kinds of political hindrances. So uh, there is a battle brewing, you know. And this is still unfolding? This is, we this don't is know absolutely how it's going to shake still, out? This is absolutely still unfolding. Hmm. And I think every joint venture, you know, is coming under pressure. And I think for the most part, they are pushing back. And I, I think largely from what I've I've heard, they are winning their cases and pushing back. But we'll see. We'll see how hard the government continues to push. That's quite a requirement. Communist Party strengthening the economy. Let's talk about the Belt and Road, because this, as you describe, is a component of strengthening the economy by going out 
So China has had a going out strategy since 1999. So for a long time, it's gone out in search of natural resources to help fuel its economic growth at home. Under Xi Jinping, the strategy has changed. China doesn't need as much uh, development inside the country. There are still some areas that do need development, but by and large, uh, many of the coastal cities you visited China, you know, are already quite well developed. And there's not, there are not many more, you know, bridges to be built or roads or high-speed rails. So the idea here is, in part, initially, to export some overcapacity within China. So it doesn't need all of its steel uh, production capacity or its coal-fired power plant production capacity. So let's export, you know, our knowledge, our technology, take it to our Sri workers. Lanka. Exactly. Yeah. Take it all to Sri Lanka yeah. and other places. And so it, it began in 2000, 2000, 2013, 2014 as an infrastructure connectivity plan mm-hmm. to connect China to, you know, 64 other countries throughout Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and out to Africa both overland and, you know, through maritime. Uh, it has more Maritime is the road. Correct. And so, the land is yes, the belt. that is correct. Yeah. It is correct. And, you know, they, they thought they were making it better by changing it from one belt, one road to the Belt and Road Initiative, but it, it really and The in problem no way is that the maritime it. is the road. Right. That is the central. That's just one of the problems. <laughs> That's just one of the problems. But, but the other problems, bigger for China, frankly, are that the way that it's developing uh, the Belt and Road projects means that they're stirring a lot of resentment in many of the countries where they're doing these projects. So uh, because they don't tend to operate uh, with the highest uh, transparency, right, in the bidding process or the highest environmental standards, they're exporting their labor. So 89% of the projects underway uh, are being done by Chinese construction companies. There's no job creation for the citizens of the country. Exactly. And yeah. if you look globally at non-Belt and Road projects, Chinese companies are responsible for about 30% of those projects, and about 40% are done by local construction companies. And uh, in the case of the Belt and Road, the local construction companies get about 7%. Hmm. So quite a significant difference. So that you, you find a lot of protests now in many of the countries where these projects are taking place. Also, the terms of lending have become a real source of concern, uh, both in a number of the poor countries, but also uh, within the sort of international lending community. So the IMF uh, has said, you know, if you look at about 10 of the countries where China's been lending, these countries are so poor, the debt has risen so dramatically as a result of these Belt and Road projects, they're never going to be able to repay these loans. Uh, and then, so then you have China say, okay, you can't repay your loan, as in Sri Lanka, we'll take control of the port instead, right? Take out a 99-year lease on this port. Then you end up with, you know, claims of neocolonialism right. uh, against the, the Chinese. All the benefits are going out. Exactly. Yeah. So I think China, you know, there's a lot of discussion about Belt and Road within China. I think there's a lot of recognition that it needs to up the way that it's doing business to prevent this kind of international backlash. You also see countries like your own country that you study, India, uh, as well as Japan and Australia, stepping up to compete, yeah. concerned well, about India's Chinese influence. been a very vocal critic about the, the transparency issue you mentioned. Right, exactly. And But the, the difference, the U.S. has been critical also, but the difference is that India, Japan, and Australia are actually stepping up with competitive offers, mm. whereas the United States has been critical but doesn't offer an alternative. So there's a, a big race, you know, kind of a great game underway, I think, uh, especially if you look in, in Africa and Southeast Asia. 
but the but the other part of the Belt and Road is that it's it's no longer simply hard infrastructure, right? It's morphed into digital Belt and Road. So the you know satellites and e-commerce and fiber optic cables. You know China's trying to capture all of that. There are political components about exporting the China model, security related issues, right? China now controls. 76 ports in 35 countries. That is what countries like India fear, that this is actually just a toehold to create a security network down the line. A- absolutely. And I think yeah. they're right to be concerned. If you look back, many years, Booz Allen Hamilton came up with that term, the string of pearls. String of pearls strategy. Right? And, yeah. and, you know, that China was going to build ports all along, you know, the Indian Ocean. And people laughed. People and look laughed. what's happening. And yeah. it's exactly what they're doing today. So, you know, very strategic. It's, it's an evolving concept, but it's also quite strategic. So we've started talking about foreign policy with the Belt and Road. I, I was really struck by your assessment that American assumptions that have underpinned our policy toward China, and you mentioned, too, the universality of our values and the anticipated evolution of China are just not reflected in the China that we now see emerging. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Because I think it's a very important corrective. Yeah, so I I think for a long time, and in particular in that 2011, you know, 2012 period when you did see this, you know, extraordinary activity on the Internet uh, and you started to see independent candidates being elected in the local elections in China, so non-communist party members, and this explosion of non-governmental organization activity, uh, all of this was taking place. I think there was a sense, and you had this big push on the environment, right, that China was like every other country, right? On the a middle trajectory class, to was, openness. Exactly. Yeah. The middle class uh, was doing what middle classes everywhere have done, which is to say, okay, we have housing, we have clothes, we have food. Now we'd like to have, you know, better health care, better environmental protection, you know, sort of second-order needs being met. And by the way, we'd like to have play a greater role in our own sort of political decision-making process. We want to have a greater voice in the decisions that affect us. And so I think, you know, for many of us who've, who've been watching China for so many years, we really thought that China was on the cusp of that transition, you know, and, and hopefully a, a peaceful, you know, transition over time, right? Gradual reform and opening up in the political system. But Xi Jinping as he has upended Deng Xiaoping's second revolution, has also upended our understanding of the direction of China. I I don't think that this is the end of history, right? Xi Jinping does not represent the end of, it's not an end point for China's political system. And I think that there have been articles now and and other things written that have sort of said, like, we got it all wrong. I, I don't think we got it all wrong. It's not that the United States has not had any influence in China. We've had substantial influence in China, right, through the development of civil society, through, you know, on the environmental protection front, our NGOs working with their NGOs. There there have been many, many ways in which the outside world has helped to shape China in many positive ways. So I don't think this is the end of the line, but it's definitely an inflection point. It's not the same line. It's not the same line. line. It's not the same line. It's a good way of putting it. And so... You know, understanding that means we need to rethink how we approach the country. You know, we can no longer say, as long as we model best behavior, right, when it comes to, you know, our trade and investment relations, for example, it's okay that China largely steals intellectual property, right? It's okay that much of its market remains closed to foreign investment. 
it's okay that it puts in subsidies and other kinds of things to promote its own companies and give them an advantage over Western companies because China's moving in the right direction. So the problem is, first, China's not moving in the right direction. Right. And second, China's just too big. Right. We're not talking about Myanmar. Right. <laughs> right. We're, we're talking about the second largest economy in the world. So it can't afford to be playing by a whole set of by a set of wholly different rules. So that's why, you know, in my recommendation section I say, you know, the time has come for us to stand up, right? And not to end cooperation, not to not look for common ground. We should still be doing that, but to adopt a certain degree of reciprocity. You talk about a renewed push for diplomacy. Yeah, I mean the renewed push for diplomacy I think comes in two different ways. So the one the one is we need to continue to work to push China, right? So I certainly would be in favor of, of pushing forward on a bilateral investment treaty, or even some people have talked about a free trade agreement with China. These are long-term efforts to work to try to open the Chinese economy. And I, I think that's important, and we should be doing it with our allies. You know, one thing that, unfortunately, I think the Trump administration has really missed the boat on is that, you know, all of these countries in Europe and Canada and everybody else, they all share the same perspective on China. They all share our perspective. And we should be working with them to push China together. Unfortunately, you know, we're too busy fighting with them as well to be right. able to work together in a, in a, in a collaborative manner. Uh, but I think that's part of the strategy. But the other part of the strategy is is to stand up and push back. And here I think the Trump administration has, in fact, it has stood up, it has pushed back. The question is, where is it going from here? Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's done a very good job of, job of articulating a, a, a longer-term strategy. The next step. The next steps, yeah. yeah. So there's step one, there's step two, but we need three, four, and five. And we've seen when the Chinese have pushed back, we don't have a three, four, and five. So I think that's problematic. But, but I do think that one thing to get the Chinese leaders' attention, uh, it's important to say, you know, we can no longer afford to allow you to break all of these rules of the game. And if you're going to play by these rules, then you're going you're gonna to face some consequences. And that's where you do see some convergence with countries like Japan, Australia, India, the United States, France. Uh, this real push on uh, rules-based international order. I don't know if we have enough time, and we can cut this if we don't, but I wanted to ask you if you could read the last two sentences of your book, because I felt that those two sentences really sum up a lot of your argument about where we are here. Sure. It's a good, good place to end, right? China cannot be a leader in a globalized world while at the same time closing its borders to ideas, capital, and influences from the outside world. The United States, in partnership with its allies and other partners, must continue to seek opportunities for cooperation, but at the same time be prepared to counter and confront China when Xi's third revolution spills over into the rest of the world, undermining the principles underpinning global security and prosperity it purports to uphold. There you go. So this has been the Asia Unbound podcast. I'm Alyssa Ayers. I encourage you to... Pick up this new book, that's The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State uh, by Elizabeth Economy. I should note also uh, that opinions expressed on the Asia Unbound podcast are solely those of the hosts or guests. Today my guest is the host, normally, not of the Council on Foreign Relations, which takes no institutional positions. Liz, thanks so much, first, for writing a terrific book, and second, for being willing to talk about it for half an hour here today. 
Thanks so much, Alyssa. It was fun to sit on the other side of the microphone for once. (laughs) 